Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. O Sovereign Father, we give you thanks and praise as we put our hope not in the world but in your word which you have revealed to us, that our souls would long for the salvation which comes from you, that our eyes long for your promise, that as we ask, when will you comfort us? That we would seek to trust that you have not forgotten us and you have not forgotten your promises. Help us to be able to endure that you would judge those who persecute your people. We pray in Christ's blessed and holy name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all his, that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies, and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh the store cities of Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Do you know a person who comes in to the middle of a movie or a TV show, and they have no idea what is happening. And they start asking all these questions. Who is that? What are they doing? Why is that person upset? Why is that happening? Why is there an argument between those two people? What are they doing that for? Is there something? And they've missed half the story. They have no idea what is happening. Now, if you can't think of a person, you are probably that person. And as some teachers might say, hold your questions till the end. Now, as you begin to read the the story of Exodus, you, you might come and you might be able to piece together some of what is happening. But you'll find very quickly, actually within the first verses, the first verse, that you're missing most of the story already. In Hebrew, the actual 
the book of Exodus actually starts with a conjunction. And. So we're already noticed right from the beginning that this is an ongoing story that has, we've missed half of it already. You're not starting merely just a new book, but you're starting a new chapter of a whole book or the second book in a volume of series of books. So what can we learn from these opening verses to help us understand the first portions of Exodus, maybe to be able to help us get up to speed to where we find ourselves as we begin to read the book of Exodus? The first thing that we see is God's promise. First thing we see is God's promise. We find this, actually, there are many promises that God has made. Actually, the book of Genesis all goes before this, all lays down the foundation of what we come to in the book of Exodus. And you might say that the book of Genesis is God's unfolding promise right from the very beginning. Right after the fall, there's a promise made, and thus it carries out, and we see more aspects of that promise grow. But the first promise that we see is the promise to Jacob. The promise to Jacob first the, the bit that we have missed is, you see, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, if we had no idea about this, we would think that the sons of Israel are different from the sons of Jacob. But if we understand the story, we understand these are not two different people. They're the same. That Israel is Jacob and Jacob is, is Israel. But if you turn back to Genesis chapter 46 to help us understand to this part of the journey, and God speaks to Jacob in Genesis 46, and he says, Jacob, Jacob. Jacob responds, here I am. Then God says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So you notice here in this that Jacob is referred to Israel, Israel is referred to as Jacob. Here we see that God made a promise to Abraham, we'll get to him, his father Isaac, But in this Genesis 46, we see three promises that God makes to Jacob. And we don't have time to be able to unpack them here. But he he says that he will go down with him to Egypt, that he would make him a great nation, that he would be with him and he would bring him back out. But we notice something strange about this promise. God would bring him out of Egypt, but also Joseph would close his eyes. Now Joseph is in Egypt. We see this in this passage. that Israel goes down. Joseph is already there. There's a king who rises up that does not know Joseph. But here the promise is that Jacob, Israel, would be made into a great nation. So when the author of Exodus writes that the sons of Israel, he's speaking specifically of this promise, that the sons of Israel are are being fulfilled in this promise as they grow, as they come into a great and mighty nation. That there would be many branches, many twigs from this family tree. 
And God has made a promise that he would bring them out of Exodus. But Exodus does not begin with them out of Egypt. It begins with the sons of Israel already in Egypt. Jacob has died, Joseph has closed his eyes, but yet there's something that has not been fulfilled in this promise. They have grown great in number, but yet they still remain in Egypt. The second promise that we see is the promise of Joseph. Just even pages before, we notice that Joseph was already in Egypt, but now he has died. Joseph dies at the end of Genesis, but before he died, he made the sons of Israel promise him something, and he said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So here Joseph is, and he makes a promise that the sons of Israel... And he says, God will visit you. And he, you should carry my bones out. It's in Genesis chapter 50. And again, we see this promise that make, that Joseph understands that he's, he's made a promise to his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather. We'll see this is something that continues throughout all the book of Exodus. Those people are dead. But yet God still remembers his promise to them. But we also notice something else, something lacking. Joseph has died, but his bones are still in Egypt. And Joseph said that God would visit him and bring them out of this land. However, in the opening verses, we're the sons of Israel. They're still in this land. The author of Hebrews actually explains that Joseph was speaking about the exodus to come. He did this by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That here, there's a promise that has been made and that promise has not yet been kept, that they are still in Egypt. The third part of this, of God's promise, is the promise to Abraham. God promised Jacob that he would be a great and mighty nation down in Egypt, and this is exactly what has happened. The people were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. But this was not just a promise made to Jacob. It was a promise that began with Abraham. When God appeared to him and said, look towards heaven in verse, uh, chapter 15 and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he says to them, so shall your offspring be. Did he, Abraham receives this promise as faith, through faith. He believes and it's counted to him as righteousness. Now we see this promise given to Abraham is actually fulfilled. They're no longer a small family of 70 people who went down to be able to find refuge underneath a king. They're a great and mighty nation. But moments later, God makes another promise that they would grow. But he then makes this promise in chapter 15, verse 13 and 
14. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they should come out with great possessions. So here God makes a promise that they're going to grow in number. They're going to be as great as the stars in heaven on the sea on the seashore. And yet, what's going to happen is they're going to move to another land, which we've seen happen at the end of Genesis. They're going to grow in great number, and what's going to happen? They're going to get afflicted. They're going to be slaves for 400 years, and then what is God going to do? But after this, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Again, you see these promises. They're going to be sojourners. They're going to be servants. They're going to be afflicted. So even before we begin the book of Exodus, we know that this story is going to get a lot worse before it's going to get any better. But we also notice that God is going to judge the nation that afflicts them. They will come out with great possessions. But what do we find in this passage? God's promises all go before, but what happens is Pharaoh's threat. We notice in all of this, something changes out of the sons of Israel's control, but it's not out of God's control. They see the blessing of being fruitful and multiplying as a part of God's promise in a land that is not theirs. They're sojourners. But what that does is then that raises concerns in the eyes of this new king, Pharaoh. Now, we briefly discussed this last week when we're looking at the dating of Exodus. We're not told who this new king is. It would have been a lot easier and saved a lot of paper if Moses had just recorded the name of this Pharaoh. We do not know. But again, the focus is not about the Pharaoh. He's nameless. The focus is on God's people, on what God is doing. And actually, what you see in in chapters 1 and 2, the focus is actually on these women who stand up against Pharaoh. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. We see that Joseph is the one that saved Egypt. He's now forgotten, and the sons are now a threat. Joseph was there for years because his brother's sin and jealousy. All in God's promises. God is, Joseph is able to be able to look back in Genesis 50 verse 20 and says, As for you, the brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And we will see this throughout the whole story of Exodus. Horrific and horrible things will happen to the people of God. And yet, what Pharaoh intends for evil, God intends for good, for his purposes, his sovereignty to shine forth, all for his glory. And even as you start to begin to think this, there's many layers that are quite mind-boggling to consider. Mainly, God had promised the sons of Israel would grow into a great nation. God had promised that uh, through Joseph that he would visit his people. God had promised that to Abraham that his people would be afflicted for 400 years. He promised that he would bring them out of this land. And we see here now Pharaoh speaking exactly of those promises. 
He sees them increase. He begins to afflict them. He's worried that they would escape from the land. And here God's promises are found in the words of Pharaoh, and they come out of his mouth. Moses actually continues to explain that they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they start to begin to build Pharaoh's cities. And we notice and see as we go through the story, but notice how Pharaoh has them building for him. Some have even suggested that here they are building places of worship. Pharaoh's name actually means great house. And yet God is the one with the humble house filled with his glory at the end of his book. The people of God go from build, building a house for Pharaoh to the house of God. They are builders and servants of the one true living God. And he does not place heavy burdens upon their back. In all of this, we see that Pharaoh did not consider. It's not even the sons of Israel. He did not consider the God of the sons of Israel. He doesn't even know who this God is, we will see. He's worried about the people of God being a threat, but yet he does not even consider who their God was, and he will be his threat. By the end of the story, Pharaoh will know the God of the Bible, the maker of heaven and earth, that all his power is in God's hands, that even includes Pharaoh's heart. Do you notice here that here we have promises that we would often think as conflicting? People growing, multiplying, increasing, but yet persecution arising. Both of these are the promises of God. We know that this is going to happen, that God's going to make him into a great and mighty nation, that God is going to use this nation to be able to afflict them with heavy burdens, and this is exactly what happened. And we think that they're, they're, they're opposites. This is where we end, that there's purpose amid the threat. In all of this opposition and oppression, that God's promise is continuing to be fulfilled even in times and situations you think would not. Notice in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people. Here, Pharaoh's plan and purpose is, let's afflict them that they don't become a threat to us. But what happens? They afflict them and they become more of a threat to them. The people of Israel, the people of Egypt now notice them. They're standing in dread of them. Then in face of adversity, the people of God continue to grow and flourish. You think these things would work against each other? You go out to your garden, you put weed and feed on all of your things. You try and kill your weeds with Roundup or whatever. You come back the next day and your weeds aren't dead. They're, they're, they've grown more. This is the way that God works. 
backwards to how we think. That in this time, God uses this to be able to grow His people. You think the tools that one uses would do the opposite effects, but God's ways are not our ways. I think we can find glorious comfort in this one verse. In this situation, you find out the enemy is attacking God's people. And and it seems like the enemy is going to be victorious. The people of God have nothing. They're slaves. They live in the land of Goshen, given to them by Pharaoh. They're they're all underneath Pharaoh's control, and yet Pharaoh has no control over God's people. But what is happening is God is making his people stronger. Here you see this comfort that we can find. That as we go through difficult and and trying situations and circumstances, that it does not then cancel out God's promises. We think God's promises automatically mean a blessing from an earthly perspective. But that's not the case. Read through the Bible. Abraham is given all of these glorious promises, and yet he dies with a plot of land, and it's a graveyard. God promised him offspring, a great and mighty nation, a glorious land for his offspring to live in, and yet where does he live? In a land that is not his, and he has one son to his name. Well, what about Isaac? A great and glorious nation, a land which should be his. He dies with two children and a graveyard. What about Jacob? A great and glorious nation compared to his grandfather and his father. He's got a quiver full, 12 sons. A land that is not his. You continue to read, I mean, we'll read about Moses. Read about Joshua. Go through all of the judges. They lived in trying and difficult circumstances, and yet, in all of this, God's promises continue to be fulfilled. The persecution can meet promise, and promise can meet persecution. And God is not below that. It's not that he's sitting there going, well, my hands are tied. Is out of my control. What am I to do? God says, no. This is my plan and my purpose. That all glory would be given to me. All things in this world are at my disposal to be able to use for my glory. Some of these vessels are for honor and some of these are for dishonor. But we see this not only just in the Old Testament, we see it also in the New Testament. The promise which God, Christ, makes in in Matthew chapter 16. When he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
the promise of God building his people up, them growing in great and number, but that does not mean that the gates of hell are not going to attack. It says they're not going to prevail against it. There's always going to be this conflict from the people of God, from those outside. If you reword that promise which Jesus made to Peter in, in Matthew chapter 16, in the time of Exodus, I think it would read something like this, I will save my people, and the plans of Pharaoh will not prevail against it. And here God uses the threat to be able to fulfill his promise. It's only when the heavy burden and affliction are placed upon the backs of the people of God that they finally cry out that God would deliver them from this slavery and seek to find a new land. We see that this is exactly not just happens in the time of Jesus, but we see this in the book of Acts as well. What you see is Persecution comes up, conflict from within the church. In Acts chapter 6, there's a dispute among the widows. You think that would tear the church apart, but what happens? God uses that to be able to build his church up, and the word of God flourishes. We see this in Acts chapter 12. What happens? James, one of the apostles, is killed by Herod, a king who oppresses God's people. And then what happens? Well, you think the church would disband, the church would split, the church would hide under rocks and they would not grow grow anymore? But at the end of the chapter, Herod is the one that dies and God's glory is lifted up. What happens? Verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. So we think that persecution means decay, death, that we have done something wrong, but yet in the book of Exodus we begin knowing that there's a plan and a purpose for all of this to be able to happen. Now if we've never read the book of Exodus, and we've only read up to this point from Genesis to Exodus chapter 1. We know many important things. The God who made the heaven and the earth is the God that made a promise to Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, that his people would go into a land that is not theirs. They would be sojourners in that land. They will be afflicted for a long time. 400 years. That God would make them into a great and mighty nation and He would bring them out. He would visit His people. He would remember His covenant. He would give them land which He showed to Abraham. And God is faithful to be able to fulfill all of His promises. And we know He will fulfill His promises because He is faithful. He is true. He cannot deny himself. We have glorious comfort to be able to know that as we go through this life, 
that God has a plan and a purpose to be able to use all things for our good in the end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that even as we begin this book that we are reminded once more of your glorious promises which you have made throughout your word. Lord, that we realize that you are a God who makes these promises and is sovereign over all things and is able to keep them. That we will see that you are the one who is mighty to save. The one who is able to raise Israel back up out of this miry clay. Set their feet upon a rock. Lord, we pray as we read through this book that we would see that this speaks not merely just of a people, a physical people looking for a physical land, but all the true sons of Abraham which are found in Christ Jesus. That we, as your sons, adopted into your heavenly kingdom, would seek to be not slaves, but children of promise. Lord, awaiting the promised land, which is Christ in heaven. Help us to be able to trust you in our, when, our, when the days are dark, when our eyes are filled with tears, when persecution abounds. But help us to see that you are the one who can build your church, even in, when the gates of hell are striking at the gate. We pray that you would uh, use these things for your purposes and your promises. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.